and I'll hold up a New Testament that I brought to the school, and I'll say, if this book is inerrant, Jesus is raised from the dead. If this book is not inerrant, it's reliable to some level, a lower or higher mid-range level. I'm going to argue that Jesus is still raised from the dead. But for you here tonight who are skeptics and atheists, if the Bible is unreliable, if there's almost nothing we can know from the Bible, I'm here to tell you tonight that Jesus is raised from the dead. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. My name is Matthew Halstead. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is all about engaging the Bible. While every episode is different, the goal is always the same. Learn more about scripture and how to interpret it. So sit back, grab your favorite beverage, and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, I'm super excited to share this conversation I had with Dr. Gary Habermas. Dr. Habermas is a leading researcher in the field of resurrection studies. And um, as we come across uh, Easter this week, or as we come up on Easter this week, um, I thought it would be so much fun to um, sit down with a scholar of Gary Habermas's repute and, and talk with him about whether or not it's reasonable to actually believe Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Dr. Habermas is completing his magnum opus, a multi-volume set on the resurrection due out starting next year. And so we talk a little bit about that and uh, I look forward to reading it. It's going to be a lot of fun uh, once it comes out. At any rate, I pray that this conversation encourages you and puts some muscle on your faith. Gary, it's nice to see you again and get to chat. How are you doing, man? I am doing splendidly, except for my so many requests for this and that that I cannot get to my publishing deadlines. So, yeah. I, I mean, in, in a way, that's a super blessing. On the other hand, I can't get to my publishing deadlines. So it's a right. mixture. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, I'm honored that you're here. You told me off air a moment ago that past three weeks, you've had 60 requests for either yeah. interviews, emails, whatever. So yeah, we're honored here. And thanks. So thanks for hanging out hey, with us. I'm honored to be on. I I took it. I took it. So I must have thought of I must have thought it was a good one. <laughs> so so Gary, uh, we've known each other for several years and we've talked a lot about the resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus and just resurrection, period. And you are the guy on the resurrection. There's like a, a so there's several of you guys. You, Tom Wright, Mike Lacona, William Lane Craig, you guys uh talk a lot about the resurrection and um and so I, i'd like to focus our our talk today on that topic it, this 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 episode will be released easter week or the week leading up to easter oh good and good. so i thought i thought let's let's have gary on let's chat about the resurrection but before we get into that tell the audience a little bit about you your educational background particularly your phd topic and how that has just opened up a huge ministry for you Wow. Well, that's a huge topic because it lasts. I mean, it literally, Mike asked me, Mike Lacone asked me about this the other day for something he's doing. And we stopped and counted. And I have been doing this. This is going to sound crazy. I've been doing it for almost 60 years. Oh, wow. I was, I, I went into some, well, I had a lot, long period of doubt. Uh, 10 straight years and 10 
on and off years for a total of 20. And and the, as I've been telling people, I only realized this so maybe a year ago, my doubt was bookended by the two most important people in my life dying. At first, the first person who died, my great-grandmother, you think, well, how can your great-grandmother be the most important person in your life? She was, and everybody in my family knew it. My parents my parents knew it, and they were it, they were too, too happy that we were that close. Well, she died, and I started going into all kinds of doubts, and it settled on my religious faith. And I was uh, a teenager when I started doubting, and I started reading everything. Uh, I mean, everything. I was reading Boltman when I was 17 and scared me to death. And so people ask me in talk shows, they'll say, hey, I'll bet you you're doing this for altruistic reasons because you know it's going to help people with doubt. And my answer is, well, I knew that would happen later. At, at that time, I didn't know it happened later, but but it, it has happened later. But no, I'm not that altruistic. I was doing it because... Uh, I couldn't stand the doubt. I couldn't stand not knowing. And one day I was reading a book that had a very simple paragraph that said if Jesus was raised from the dead, Christianity would be true, because otherwise, why would God raise him? And I thought, wow, well, my friends were sending me to, I won't say silly things, but for my questions, they didn't come up very high on the chart. And they were saying, read this, read that. How about this topic? How about that? And I thought, well, those are good, but they don't answer my questions. And then when I read that paragraph, that did it. Hmm. And I realized that if Christ had raised from the dead, everything else is anchored to it. And my doubt ended just a handful of years before my wife and mother of my four children died of stomach cancer. So that's the other bookend. So I got in it for my own doubts. And now if it's helping people, I'm overjoyed but I can't say that's why I started. Hmm. Yeah. And and then t tell us a little bit about your doctoral work and the project that you focused on uh, that eventually led to your PhD. Okay. Well, I did my PhD in the Middle Ages, uh, <laughs> 1975. And uh, in those days, at least at, that, at my school, Michigan State, they weren't like the schools today that generally have three men doctoral committees. Uh, I had six people on my committee. And as far as I could tell, you didn't ask people direct questions, but as far as I could tell, three of them believed in the resurrection and three of them did not. And it was very balanced. Uh, I had a Jewish historian on my committee. He was the most complimentary guy of my dissertation. And when it was over, you get a kick out of this, your folks will. Uh, he handed me the dissertation back and he goes, I like it. He goes, but I think you left out the chief evidence for the resurrection. And I'm thinking two things shot in my mind immediately. What have I left in my whole life of studying? And number two, why are you a Jewish non-Christian historian suggesting this? And I said, so what did I leave out? And he said... You said nothing about the Shroud of Turid. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> it is interesting on a yeah. bunch of grounds hmm. that he would even care about it. And, you know, but so the committee was good. They were very complimentary. They did not have me add a sentence to my dissertation. 
And I didn't think I was going to get through. I, I thought they're going to be really super, super tough, but they had me leave the room and they discussed it. They invited me back in. I was all nerved up. And the director said, thank you for stepping back in here, Dr. Habermas. And I thought, oh my, I can't believe it. That's a good so, sign. Yeah. yeah, that was yeah, that was a great sign. And now, now your project specifically, uh, your your dissertation, which essentially became a, your life's work, that's culminating yeah. in a magnum opus that you're currently working on. We'll, we'll talk about that in a, in a few as well. But the essential thrust of your work is that okay, if the Bible is true, if it's inerrant, let's just take the the top notch here. If it's inerrant, then you then you need to believe in the resurrection. If the Bible, if the New Testament is not inerrant, but it's still historically reliable, you should still believe in the resurrection. And so can I can I work with, uh, you know, kind of take us through those steps? I mean, it seems obvious that if the Bible is inerrant, if it's, you know, completely uh, inerrant, then you would have to believe in the resurrection because the Bible sure. speaks of it. But how could it be the case that if the Bible is not inerrant, okay, if it's just a historical document, if the New Testament writings particularly, why should a person still believe that Jesus rose oh, from the dead? I'll add one more step to your two steps. I'll add a third one. Okay. And I frequently do this when I'm in lectures, especially state universities. And I hold up a New Testament that I brought to the school. And I'll say, if this book is inerrant, Jesus is raised from the dead. If this book is not inerrant, it's reliable to some level, a lower or higher mid-range level. I'm going to argue that Jesus is still raised from the dead. But for you here tonight who are skeptics and atheists, if the Bible is unreliable, if there's almost nothing we can know from the Bible, I'm here to tell you tonight that Jesus is raised from the dead. And so I, you know, I think that kind of is a tension grabber. And so what I've been doing for this these four volumes that you're calling, you know, my magnum opus, volume one is a volume on evidence. I just turned it in, and the printed pages are just short of 1,100 pages. And it took that long to, sp to spread the evidence. And here's the key. I used evidence the way critics used evidence. At no point did I ever argue the Bible is true because the Bible says so. That's ridiculous. It, not ridiculous as a statement, but ridiculous that I would try to convince anybody by arguing that way. Uh, it doesn't work. So I'm using this lowest common denominator argument that I can just use a dozen facts, which I cut down to six. And those six are what I call the minimal facts. And I think you can show that without any question that the resurrection is the best uh, possibility for those six facts than any other solution. And these, and these six minimal facts are facts that every historian, whether confessional or non-christian historian would um assent to right these are that's yeah. why you call them the minimal facts like these are the minimal yeah, facts yeah, we yeah. all agree to so so what when what i say they, when yeah. i say these guys accept it i don't mean oh you've got to be wrong because if almost everybody accepts these guys how about the dozens of people i've read who don't even believe jesus existed and i go time out time out you're talking about people who may live in their parents house they call themselves they, they call themselves Bible scholars. They haven't been to school. Um, how are they picking this up on their own? 
and they don't believe Jesus exists. But the real scholars, the New Testament atheists, don't give those guys the time of day. In fact, Bart Ehrman, the well-known New Testament atheist, said, he said, those people, the mythers, he said, they're mad that we don't give them attention and praise their little books, their ebooks or whatever they are. We we don't praise them. And they're ticked at that. He said, but I want to tell you something. We don't read them because they're not scholars. And they say a bunch of things, which I think he calls laughers, a lot of laugh comments. And he says, they think they have scholarship on their side. He says, they don't have scholarship on their side. He said, they don't have a foothold. They don't even have a toehold on the data. No, I'm talking about guys who, they have to be scholars in a, in a uh, related field. That'd be like yourself. I mean, New Testament, theology, history, classics, philosophy, um, archaeology. There are some people with PhDs in archaeology. Uh, those would all be relevant fields from this time period. And then they have to be specialists with that background working in this area. They're the people I'm surveying. And they're the ones who agree to the historicity of the six facts, almost without exception. Right. So and so the, the question becomes, um, what do you do with the six facts? Like, what's the interpretation of the six data points? Right. So yeah. you and, and that's where the differences will be, of course, between, say, an atheist New Testament scholar or an agnostic and a confessional scholar like yourself. But but what is not in dispute um, it, you know, the, the facts are not in dispute, the, the six minimal facts. So can you kind of give us a rundown? What are those six facts that every scholar sure. or a vast majority of scholars will believe in? Can, can you give us a rundown of those? Sure. I'll do it real quickly. Yep. Jesus died by crucifixion. And this one is just as well accepted as crucifixion. I mean, there are two of the, I'd say along with preaching the kingdom of God, these are the three best things we know about Jesus. The second one is, the disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. They had a real experience, which in their interpretation was Jesus risen. Th thirdly, this, this, these data were preached very, very early. How early? Well, Garrett Ludeman uh, passed away a, just, just re not too long ago, but atheist New Testament scholar, Garrett Ludeman said this message was preached, and his word is immediately. In fact, one scholar wrote an article a few years ago and said this idea that whatever their experiences were, they started being preached immediately. He said it is a baseline given from critical theologians today. It was published in a major New Testament journal. In fact, I think it was a journal of New Testament studies. But, okay, that's three. Crucifixion, experiences early. Four, they turned the world upside down. Their lives were transformed, sometimes to the point of dying, sometimes just to the point of being beat up, sometimes just to the point of leaving their families and businesses and traipsing around the world because they were so committed that they were called to preach the gospel. A few of them did die as martyrs. We have first century uh, statements for the martyrdoms of three of the four best known ones, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, um, uh, Peter, and Paul. And uh, John's the other one. And uh, so we have martyrdom comments for three. They were uh, three of the four. They were sold out. And four and five are the two individuals, James, the brother of Jesus, 
And Paul, the skeptic, uh, who was going across the countryside, bringing in men and women, he, he never said he killed them, but he said, I testified against them to their deaths. So I guess that means he gave the, one of the major testimonies that got him killed. Uh, those six, you you will have to look hard to find anybody who disagrees with any of them. Right. And so what are the basis what what's what basis do these people have for believing in these six minimal facts if they don't believe the Bible is say inerrant? Like is it they're they're using you know, tell the audience like like the data that that or how they get how they're getting their data. Is it are they are they are still re- Yeah, so I guess what I'm getting at is like okay, so let's just assume uh, that the Bible's not inspired by any means and um it's still reliable, it seems, for as a historical document of what was going on in the first century, right? That that the, these even secular scholars, atheistic, agnostic scholars, still look to the New Testament as historical artifacts that we can use to discover something about the early Christian movement. Is that that's correct? They right? do. Yeah. What they do is, um, for here's a good example. Barterman says the Gospels are not reliable. And then he turns around for his whole book, Did Jesus Live? And he tells you a whole bunch of things in Jesus' life that are reliable, and either they happened or something very like them happened. For example, he says, one of the best-known rules that New Testament scholars, as well as historians, use, um, multiple facts, independent multiple facts, is a great measure of whether something happened. And Barterman lists 15 sources within 100 years of Jesus' death, which is his period of historicity, 100 years in the ancient times. He says he's got 15 sources, uh, Christian and non-Christian, for the death of Jesus by crucifixion. He says it's not questioned at all. By the way, that earlier fact I mentioned, the disciples being transformed, it was Bart Ehrman who said, after they had these real experiences, and after they began preaching them, his phrase was, they turned the world on its ear. That, that's pretty cool. I mean, that, that's a pretty good phrase for what transformation is. So what these guys do is they'll start with Paul. And they think Paul is the number one New Testament scholar. It's a real easy reason for that. They don't think any apostles wrote the four Gospels. I'm talking about the real skeptical guys. The middle-of-the-road moderates will give you... I, I understand from New Testament scholars that uh, Mark on Mark maybe even Mark from Peter on Mark and Luke are pretty much givens. But Luke and John are the are more questioned. But what they'll, so, so they don't know that about the Gospels. So they go to Paul because they know they can trust Paul. And what they'll do is of the 13 books that bear Paul's name, they will grant the historicity of seven of those books. And I, I tell my, my PhD students, it's interesting because the seven books they grant are the seven you would use if you're giving a series on who is the Apostle Paul. And those seven are Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, and Philemon. Now, so there's, there's your start to your question. We'll give you those seven epistles. And if you pulled something from those seven epistles, if we don't believe it, at least we say you're within your rights to use it because it's from a really good source. So they'll give you those seven by Paul. That's a good start. Start. Then you got uh, Ehrman, who pulls all kinds of facts out of the Gospels, which he says are unreliable, but you still know all these things. 
And so when you start doing this, how many are multiply attested? How many of them have likely authors? When you start doing this, you get a long list of facts. And those six are among the ones they grant. So even if it's not reliable, as Ehrman says, mm -hmm. even if it's not reliable, you have enough data to stand on. And a lot of these guys will tell me, I accept all Habermas's six facts, but it's what you do with them that's important. And I'll say, well, great. Now, what do you do? What do you do with them? Mm -hmm. And they'll go, well, I don't know. What do you want me to do? And I'll say, well, pick a naturalistic theory. If you don't think it happened, pick a natural, and they will almost never pick a naturalistic theory. And this is changing significantly. It's one of the things I found out. Um, they will seldom pick a naturalistic theory, but they will even more seldom pick one theory and only one theory and stick to it so that if they're disproven, they're wrong. And that's why they won't do it because they know you are armed. It's like you're covered with 20 weapons on your body and you're going to use whichever one you need if they come at you and you're going to use them against their one. And if they lose that one, the world will know they don't have a basis for what they're saying. So they generally... I mean, some of the main guys who only chose one theory, two of them just died. Uh, Garrett Ludeman and John Shelby Spong just died in the last couple of years. So they're not around anymore. And one of the other guys who just died, E.P. Sanders of uh, Oxford and Duke Universities, uh, Sanders says in one of his books that the naturalistic theories are no good. They've been refuted. He calls himself a liberal. And then he says, however, these theories just don't work. They're baloney. So, yeah, and E.P. Sanders, as every Pauline scholar will tell you, E.P. Sanders was a pretty important scholar. <laughs> this, past, this uh, every New Testament scholar will tell you that E.P. Sanders was a very important scholar this past. Oh, yeah, century, he changed right? the whole. He yeah. and he and his co-author changed the whole world from Boltmann over to the Third Quest. There, He's the bridge between Boltmann's dominance for fifty. Well, Bart's in there too. So Bolt, Boltmann's, let's say. Boltman was in charge for 20 years, um, pretty much. Uh, Sanders changed Bart's Hellenistic take on the New Testament to the third quest Jewish take on the New Testament. That was Sanders. So so essentially, th th this is why you call it the minimal facts, is because we're going to use minimal sources. You, you're saying to yourself, okay, I'm going to look at the, only the sources that say the the skeptics are going to use yep i'll play that gameplay by those rules and then let's see where we get and you're saying that those sources will give you the minimal facts that everybody can attest to and you just named them and the only reasonable explanation the best explanation you might say is uh, of those minimal facts is that jesus rose from the dead that's right that's my point yeah so let it let's it we've played this game a lot of times we've we've done it uh, you know, in, in public settings and things of like that. You did it at your house one night. Yeah, we were. At, yeah, that's right. Where yeah, your we where your elders and a couple other people were firing all kinds of doubts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for the listeners, uh, Gary was over uh, at my house several years ago, and uh, with just a, a group of guys, and and uh, we were just hanging out and chatting, and and um, we you know we we kind of play this game. Matt gets to be the skeptic, and Gary gets to win him to Christ, kind of thing. So. Um, it, was kind of, it was it was a good night. Yeah, we did that at we did that at the conference at the uh, lecture you gave at church. Uh, I remember that too. So this is you know every time we get together we sort of play this game. So we're gonna play the game now. Oh, um, we are okay. Let's okay. do it. So I'm gonna push back. Let me let me play skeptic here, 
I'm going to push back and say, okay, um, maybe Jesus only seemed to die, right? What's wrong with that? Maybe, maybe he just got knocked out. Maybe, and then his appearances later, you know, weren't all that extraordinary because he never died in the first place. What's wrong with that argument? Okay, this is called variously either the swoon or the apparent death theory for the listeners. And 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 first of all, I'll tell you of the critics out there. You can't name of the sharpest guys who work in this narrow area, the Ludemans and the Ermans, and you probably can't name five published scholars. I can only go by the published scholars. I can't tell who does it in private, but you probably can't name five of them who hold that theory. And well, let me for just start with a comment. That'll give some refutations. John Dominic Crossan, who's as well known as a skeptic as anybody, and then Marcus Borg, who passed away a few years ago, like co-founders of the Jesus Seminar, who reject up to 91% of Jesus's so-called red-letter sayings. John Dominic Crossan says, it's pretty close to a quote. He says, I take it absolutely for granted that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. And Borg's comment, you would think they wrote the two together because it's almost a twin. So here you got two of the best skeptics in the world. Bart, Bart Ehrman would say the same thing. Absolutely for granted. So here's what you got to ask. Why do they think Swoon does not have a chance? If they think Swoon doesn't have a chance, and many, many others don't, it must not, because these guys are very, very skeptical. Okay, here's some of the things I would say. First of all, uh, myself and two friends, one of them uh, a medical uh, student finishing his MD and he's got a PhD from medical school because we need him in this group. We published an article about a year or so ago in a medical journal on the cause of Jesus' death. Now, we didn't argue that a certain cause had to be it, but all we gave was a head count of medical people. And asphyxiation was chosen about two to one over all the other theories combined. Take all the other theories and double it, and that's asphyxiation. Now, the key to asphyxiation is you don't have to have a medical degree. You don't have to have an EKG or an EEG. Um, the centurion doesn't have to know anything. He just has to let the guy hang on the cross. And the asphyxiation theory, if it's true, not everybody says it is, is that when you slump down low on the cross, you asphyxiate. So you can't do it. You start losing your consciousness and you can't breathe. You push up. When you push up, you take these big gulps of air, and that's when you cuss people out or, you know, the two guys on each side of Jesus. They were saying all kinds of things to the people, and that's when you do it. You push up and you let them have it, and you slump back down because it hurts to stand up like that. And you start asphyxiating again. All the centurion has to know, you go, well, how can they broke the ankles of the two guys on either side of Jesus and he left Jesus alone? Did the disciples pay him off? Uh, no, because he'd have to deal with Pilate. So first of all, the disciples weren't allowed. They, they ran away. But if Pilate sees you hanging in the low position for a long time, let's say a half hour, and not pushing up, you're dead. You can't fake, on the asphyxiation view, you cannot fake death by asphyxiation. So they came to him. And then it says to make sure they did not break his ankles, but he instructed one of his legionnaires to stab him in the chest with a, a spear. And you go, but that's only in John. Okay, cool. Why is it that Raymond Brown, 
James D.G. Dunn, and C.H. Dodd, three of the very sharpest New Testament guys of the last generation. All three of them take a stand for the spear wound. Why? Well, one reason is um, we have a Roman source, Quintilian, who tells us the centurion, when they take the crucifixion, the dead body of the crucifixion victim, they take him down, and a family comes to, before they throw him in a pit, if a family wants the body, he has one of his men strike the body one last time. Now, the word for strike in Latin is a military term, and it means to hit with an axe, a spear, or a sword to strike the body. So the dead body's lying in the ground, the family wants it, and they've got to strike where they know they won't strike the knee. They're going to, these soldiers are going to put their weapon somewhere that they know will kill the guy. So what I'm, what I'm saying here is that the centurion did to Jesus precisely what Quintilian said the centurion to do after they got him down, but the centurion did it when he was still hanging there at the end. All right, so we got two things going here. Death by asphyxiation, you don't fake it. All right, so you do fake it. You barely make it. Nobody knows you're, and we only have a couple cases of people who got down off the cross out of thousands of people. If I'm not mistaken, Josephus said they crucified 500 a day. So thousands of people died. All right, so they take him down. Let's say he's breathing very shallow, shallowly and they don't know he's alive. So he has his man in Quintilian strike the guy. On the cross, they stab him in the chest. Okay, if you happen to make it breathing very shallowly and you're in a coma, I think that spear wound in the chest will break you out of your reverie. You know, it would it would end it. But here's the third and major problem. There's there's many others, but here's the three three major ones. Third is a critique by the German skeptic David Strauss in 1864 when he wrote his uh, Life of Jesus for the German People. He said the problem with the swoon theory, which is probably the most popular theory at that time, and in 18 up to maybe 1850, um, he said the problem with the theory is. If Jesus struggled out of the tomb on Sunday morning, here's his problems. One, he didn't die. Two, he's got to move the stone. Three, if you believe in the guard, skeptics don't. If you believe in the guard, he's got to get past them. Four, he's got to limp to where the disciples are. How, how far away would they be? I, I don't know, quarter mile? It'd be, um, it'd be a distance. Had, pardon? It'd be a distance for a beat up man. For a for a basically yeah. dead man, yeah. um, he'd have to walk there. And Strauss said, what's he say when he gets to the door? Mm. He's holding his side. He hasn't washed his hair. Um, his He's soaked with sweat and blood in his clothes. And he puts up his hand and he says, I told you I would rise again from the dead. And to make a long story short, I don't doubt that the disciples would say God healed him. God did it. We believe, we believe medicine. Um, they would say, God healed him. But I'll tell you what, he's alive, but he isn't risen. This is not our definition of risen. Mm. And then Andrew over in the corner says, oh boy, someday I'm going to have a resurrection body just like his. It, it doesn't work. So they would have to nurse him back to health. Who knows where he died, what he did, but they'd have to nurse him back. One thing they would know is that he wasn't raised. And this is called the Strauss critique. And today, 
when skeptics are telling you why they don't believe in the swoon theory, Dominic Crossan talks about asphyxiation. That's about as far as he goes. Asphyxiation is enough for him. But you've got a spear wound and a guy who could not possibly be risen but alive. Those three things, uh, pardon the pun, but those things kill the swoon theory. I got a bunch of other reasons too, but those three are the knockout punches. And virtually nobody takes it for, I mean, like Crossan, just asphyxiation. One of it, one of them does it for most people. You got all three, they seem almost closed case with any of them. I'm reminded of something that N.T. Wright mentioned one time in addressing this question. He said, um, no, uh, the, the Romans knew how to kill people, right? And and just who that- said, Who said that? Uh, N.T. Wright. Yeah. Anti right did yeah 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 and, and I think I think that's a that's a a pretty good uh, response. I mean the Romans were professional killers; they knew what they were doing, and um, so yeah. The other thing too is, you know, what what's the evidence in the first century, you know, it, with respect to Jesus's death? I mean, it seemed overwhelming that everybody thought he died, right? So so the idea that he could have swooned out of the the tomb or you know uh, looked only looked dead or it was only quote partially dead or something like that that just seems kind of to fly in the face of what we know from the first century namely that no yeah. people thought he died right yeah so if yeah. that if that's not a good objection just moving on um suppose we could entertain another objection okay he died we'll grant that we'll go with all this with with what everybody's saying even the most skeptical people saying that yeah he died we'll concede that fact yeah but let's suppose the disciples made it all up Right. Let's suppose that they had 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 something to gain from the uh, the idea, the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. What what's wrong with that argument? With that critique, uh, you you can start almost anywhere, but it's probably now. Are you going to say they stole the body too, or are you not going to put that in there? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, they made it. Let's say they stole the body as well, just to kind of and they lied. Yeah, and they lied. Okay. Yeah. Um. Okay. Where are you going to start? Um, first of all, there's virtually nobody today who will take that theory. No skeptic. Hmm. And it has it's been held by virtually nobody since a German named Hermann Samuel Reimarus in 18, sorry, 1765. Nobody's held it. Like every once in a while, somebody plays with it. Richard Carrier has a little essay where he goes, Well, why not? You can play with this, but it's not his theory. He doesn't like it. Hmm. So the fact that nobody takes it, if no skeptic takes it, none, there's reasons why nobody takes it. Mm. The main one is still, the main comeback is the famous phrase we use, liars don't make martyrs. The the, the guys who stole the body, and you can leave that out, you know, no, 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 let's not say they stole the body. Let's just say they just lied. But the guys who stole the body cannot be the guys that give their life for this and go in the same town over and over again. And someone says, well, you can't read their minds. You don't know if they thought they were going to be beat up when they went in there. And I go, I'm not reading their minds. I'm reading their feet. If they go in the same geographical region or into the same town where they were already beaten up once, probably you don't go there again unless you're really revved up to be to really think you're preaching for the Lord. Now, how does that belief come when you've stolen the body? Now, what did you do with it? Um, you know, anyway, but liars don't make martyrs is a huge problem for that view. In fact, it is one of the theories that has a one punch knockout. 
And the one punch knockout is a lot of the theories. You have to you have a lot of punches and you knock the theory down. Hallucination is an example. But a one punch knockout is the guys who take the body could not be the guys who are transformed, who and some among them. We know they died. Bart will say, well, we only know a few of them died. Great. Let's talk about the ones we know died. Peter, James, Paul, the most influential guys of all time. Okay. A couple other problems. If they stole the body and lied, what brings James to the faith? Jesus' brother. Third problem. What brings Paul to the faith years later? He's walking to, he's walking to Damascus and all of a sudden it hits him. Wow. Those guys could have stolen the body and and Jesus is alive. And I'm going to live the rest of my life for him. And then I'll die as a martyr for him. Those things are just, they're, they're highly anti, each one is, is the opposite of the other one. And you've got to pull off about four of those to account for Paul's conversion. So you've got the liars don't make martyrs. You've got James Paul. There's three right there. So if we had three for swoon, there, there's three I would use for stolen body. And there are many others for stolen yeah. body. Yeah, liars don't make martyrs, you'd say. So is it fair to say that um, a lot of people die for a lie, but nobody knowingly dies for their lie, right? Is that a yeah, fair are, statement? Yeah, you could say a lot of people die for a lie, uh, and they know it's a lie. But nobody, nobody, let's see if I get this right. There's guys who would say this very eloquently. There's a sentence that's said about this. But nobody dies for something that is a lie, but they totally believe it to be true. Um, you don't, did I say that right? Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah that, um, they don't die for a lie that they know is true. That Correct. That they, yeah. Yeah. I get what you're saying. That they know they is actually a lie. They have to be mistaken. But right. how could they be mistaken if they're the ones that stole the body? Correct. Yeah, it's a contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a number of like psychological defenses here, like yeah. kind of what we're talking about here. But one one piece here, and I know this is something that many people talk about, but um, it's important for the audience to, to, to hear this part, too, is that there's a theological objection here is that early Jews weren't necessarily anticipating an individual re resurrection. They were Absolutely. anticipating... Yeah, they were anticipating a general resurrection at the end of time, but as N.T. Wright says, not the resurrection of one person in the middle of time. And not the Messiah. Not the Messiah, right. That's two. That's two points. So and, you if, know, they, if they were going to make something up, this probably wouldn't be it. This is not how they would have thought. Yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's, that's good stuff. There's all kinds of things. Okay, when I went through these six minimal facts, the second volume, which has been turned in, was turned in about two and a half weeks ago. The second volume is all naturalistic theories. To my knowledge, nobody spends as much time on naturalistic theories in print as Mike Lacona, who spends just short of 250 pages. The next book is Mike's and my co-authored book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And if you count the end notes, it's almost 100 pages against the naturalistic theories. The book I just turned in is all naturalistic theories and it's um, it's over a thousand pages. It's mm. probably the longest treatment. Oh, here's the point I'm trying to make: of the six facts, every time you want to list evidences for those six facts that go against the naturalistic theories, keep in mind I'm not using reasons that evangelicals cite because they cite a they cite a 
an inerrant or almost an errant book and they get these facts. I argue the way critics argue. Right. And each one of the facts, I have I have an average. I just did this the other day. I have an average of 14 refutations mm. of each thing that can be brought up. It's like 13.9 of, of each one that can be brought up. And you got to keep in mind, they don't come from people who quote the Bible and say, therefore, it's true. They come from the John Dominic Crosses, Marcus Borg, E.P. Sanders. Well, Sanders isn't even that strong, not like these guys. Uh, Bart Ehrman and Garrett Ludeman. They're the reason, they're the guy. I prefer to use those guys. They're easier to use those guys mm -hmm. because people realize if you're using them, whoa, if they say you can get by with this, I guess you can get by with it, you know, that kind of thing. But 14 evidence is a piece. Mm -hmm. So when I give you three for swoon and three for stolen body, that's three out of an average of 14. I got, you know, some of them are major and some of them are minor. But you got a bunch more waiting in the wings for each one of these refutations. Hey, everyone, let's pause our conversation for just a moment because I want to share with you about some new features I'm offering. If you find this podcast encouraging, if you find it to be a good resource for your study of scripture, consider becoming a Patreon member. This will give you access to some cool stuff and it will help support the podcast. There are various tiers of support starting at just $5 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets access to a monthly bonus episode, as well as an invitation to be part of the launch team for my latest book. Other levels of support will get you access to early drafts of my books, articles, and research that I'm doing. You also have the option to join monthly Zoom meetings with me, where we will take deep dives into all sorts of biblical and theological subjects. You can even sign up to be a voting member of episode topics, as well as enter into cool monthly book giveaways. Visit patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or follow the Patreon link in the description for this episode. A Patreon membership supports my ministry and it really helps me do what I do. I cherish your support. So if you would, consider becoming part of the Bible Unmuted community. You know, somebody might push back. I can I can envision perhaps a very conservative Christian pushing back and say, well, you, you don't need to give up the inerrancy of the Bible to make this case for the resurrection. And um, but it's interesting. T tell me what you think about this. I mean, the, the resurrection was a story that was told, a message that was proclaimed before the New Testament was canonized. Right. right. And so so your your method of kind of bypassing the whole inerrancy question um, or even inspiration question, right, is is pretty at, pretty much at home in the first century because they didn't have the New Testament canon at all to when they, yes. but they yet they were still proclaiming the resurrection. And why do why do you think that's that's is is that even an important point to make? I've I've heard Dan Wallace talk a little bit about about the question of you know this question of inerrancy and basically saying, look, I'm not going to lose my faith if the Bible turns out not to be inerrant, which I think would be shocking to many evangelical Christians. But essentially. Um, your method sort of would would definitely allow for that. Like, yeah, I think your point is is brilliant, Matt. Your point that the way I'm arguing right now is the way the apostles would have to argue before the Gospel of Mark was written. Mm -hmm. So, if Mark is sixty, which is pretty early, uh, I think Urban says sixty sixty five. Let's say sixty seventy. Let's say sixty. That kind of inerrancy, inspiration, how good is the text argument, you don't get all these facts from Paul's epistles. So you kind of have to start with the 
uh, uh, gospels because they tell the story of the crucifixion mm. and and the and the initial appearances. And by the way, the strongest single appearance is the appearance of the twelve. It is the one that is everybody agrees to that. Uh, it is the one that is singly attested by the most reasons and the most sources. So, but you have to get to Mark, who doesn't even have appearances. So now you got to get to Matthew. Now that's going to bother some people. I'll let you uh, tell the people who are nervous that I said you don't have. Most scholars think that Mark's gospel ends at chapter sixteen, verse eight. So the appearances now are going to go to Matthew, which critics usually date uh, about eighty to eighty-five. 30 to 85 is 50 to 55 years. Mm. That's a long time to wait. So up until that yeah. time, what you're saying is they have to argue the way I'm arguing. That, that's what I find fascinating about your argument. I've, I've always loved your argument, but I, I find that really fascinating um, for, for that reason. I mean, because I think there's a lot of, a, I don't get into apologetics that much anymore, but um, and and part partly I think because sometimes apologetics can come across a little cheap, you know what I mean? It's, it's it sometimes it, is what it comes across a little cheap. A lot of apolo Christian apologetic approaches to to uh -huh. defending the faith. There, in, in other words, what I'm saying is that there's a lot of apologetic arguments out there that just don't do the job, at least even to my satisfaction as a Christian. Sure. And I think that's why I love your argument is because you're getting back down to the bare bones of what that ancient or the first century proclamation was all about. And that's why it's important to bring in those perhaps psychological explanations that we were talking about, you know, the, the psych, the get into the psyche of the, of the, uh, the first Christians, like why were they willing to die for things like this? Right. And it was only to tell me your comment on this. When I read first Corinthians 15, um, you know, there's a little creed there in first Corinthians 15. That's very important. Mm -hmm. Um, Paul makes a statement in that chapter though, where he says, look, our faith is in vain if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And I think that's a very important statement because if 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 I were making up a new re, new religion, quote unquote, a new movement, and I based that entire movement upon the veracity of the resurrect physical resurrection of a person, I wouldn't I, that that wouldn't make sense. If I was if I was going to do that, I would base it on maybe a feeling or flutter in my heart, not something that's in the real world. You know what I mean? I, it would do something like, yeah. "Hey, I had this vision one night, and God told me that we're all wrong, so follow me." Because that's a subjective experience that can't be put to test. But a physical resurrection implies an empty tomb, it implies appearances, perhaps, right? And and that's why I find Paul's statement there so fascinating. What, what, what would you have to say about that? Like the central point being, uh, the central point of the, of the Christian faith being the resurrection. How important well, is that in this? How moment? about this? I'm glad this point came after our earlier one. Yeah. I said the critics will almost never, seldom enough will they pick a theory. But almost never will they pick only one theory and stick with it. And some of the main ones died in the last couple of years. There's almost no, I'm a well, real well-known guy who takes one of the, because they're afraid if you get after them and disprove it, they can't then say, oh, no, 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 let me check this other one. Because you look really, really bad at a debate and everybody starts saying the Christian looks like the right one here. Okay. Paul is doing what the skeptics won't do. Paul is picking a theory. Paul is saying, yeah, this guy truly, truly died. Um, that's 15 verse 3. Hmm. He truly died. Let me tell you what happened afterwards. He was raised from the dead. Now, what Paul's saying is, it's not swoon. It's not hallucination. It's not stolen body. He, he did what 
what Bart Ehrman won't do. Bart Ehrman said in a recent book, I won't pick a naturalistic theory anymore. Um, Paul picked a supernatural theory and was willing to stand on it. And darn, you know, Paul, good job. All the evidence stands with you. You couldn't have known that in those days. You knew you knew some evidence, but look at all we're finding now with multiple attestation and the criteria in the New Testament. What points to this and this and enemy attestation and embarrassment and all this kind of stuff. Paul didn't work with that stuff, but he boldly said, I'll take one theory. He was raised from the dead and will be raised too. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think and I, I've studied a lot of Paul's Paul's uh, interpretations of the Old Testament, and sure there's a, there's a her, there's a hermeneutic that I've detected in my, I I put this in my book, and especially Romans four, uh, Paul interprets the Abraham story with a resurrection hermeneutic, and that's important I think because it shows just how important the resurrection was to him. It not only changed his life, but it changed his hermeneutic, right? And and that's Good just point. An, that's another yeah, four twenty five, right? Yeah, he he essentially retells the Abraham story christologically, right? And it just I'm just I'm trying to think Paul's thoughts after him here, and yeah, and that's not the only place. Like the resurrection, I, it was just it was groundbreaking, I think, as an event for him, and, and which is which when you consider his not only skeptical previous life. But he wasn't just a skeptic. I mean, he was an enemy, right? I mean, he was someone who who saw the Christian movement as a heresy that he wanted to squelch out. So something had to change change his mind, and and uh, the, the the Christophany that he experienced on Damascus Road was very important, very important. Um, I, I would say I just got two more questions, uh, and then I'll let you go. Um, let's let's get real practical, maybe perhaps pastoral here. Um, this Easter, what can what should Christians take away from? From the resurrection uh, story. In other words, how does it help us today? I mean, we know it's you know it paves the way for our resurrection at you know at the end of time and so forth. But what about today? Like, how does it help us navigate the craziness of our strange world? Yeah, and I think it's especially good at this. First of all, an intro comment: the resurrection is related to almost every major area of theology in the New Testament. Three hundred verses on the resurrection, New Testament. And those 300 verses are related to almost every major doctrine. Hmm. Most of all, the gospel doctrine of the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Totally. But a lot of other stuff, too. First Thessalonians and the stuff about Jesus' return. And so, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Talk about practical. Start right there. I'll go backwards. What about when a loved one dies? Um, believers and unbelievers are sad. Paul says, we grieve, too. But here's the difference. We are not like those who grieve and don't have hope. Now, you and I have both done a number of funerals, and I was a pastor for years. Um, an unbeliever's funeral is a lot different than a believer's funeral. Now, critics can say, ah, oh, the believers are just, they're just hoodwinked. Okay, great. Well, now we're back to you. Then you fight yourself through this maze and why it couldn't have happened. But Paul says the resurrection gives us a hope that even when we bury our mother, our father, our child, our brother, our sister, our spouse, when we bury that kind of person, knowing they're going to live forever gives us an incredible peace. So I'll go back to that one at the beginning. The one that's said to be true, the teaching for today, that is said to be true more than any other teaching in the New Testament, almost 20 times in the New Testament, we will be raised like him. Jesus said it. Paul said it. John said it. Um, John says, I like his words, we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. Uh, the New Testament hope is 
that we will be raised like Jesus. And the reason the resurrection is worth it, if you want to get right down to it, we can be as selfish as we want to, but the reason it's so important is because it is the reason we will be raised together. And, and that's an important point. Paul says, Paul actually tells us that we will be raised corporately and we will all be together. He tells us that, he, he says, uh, you will be raised and we will be raised together with you. Now, that's interesting because the Jewish view was the resurrection would happen as a unit. The whole nation would be raised together. Paul kind of incorporates that with Christians a little bit. He knows they're, they're, they die at different times. But he said, we will be raised together and share with you in heaven. So what you got right there is um, life after death, eternal life after death, and sharing the part of our existence that we probably value the most, the sharing that's all guaranteed by the resurrection. Hmm. And wait, no, sorry, I forgot to put my phone away. Um, but he—that's th just two right there that sure. will be raised, and we'll we'll be able to fellowship together. And you got the third one that we that I already gave. We hmm. uh, have hope at funerals. We have hope. But if you line up all the things that are true. Paul ties the meaning of the cross to the resurrection. Hmm. Justification in, in Romans 4.25 is tied to the resurrection. Um, in 1 Corinthians 8, it seems like he's recast a, a creed. He's repeated a creed that brings Jesus into the Shema. And the, the God of the Shema is the Father, and the Lord of the Shema is Jesus. And that's an 8.6. Well, that's only seven chapters before the resurrection of Jesus. Paul knows about the resurrection in his mind when he copies that that uh, creedal, almost like, um, you know, uh, two members of the Trinity. And Oscar Coleman, the uh, famous creedal author uh, who talks about the early creeds and how early they are, he says, there are no Trinitarian creeds but there are a bunch of creeds that prefigure the Trinitarian, like um, baptizing them in the name, singular, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, what is it, end of 2 Corinthians, where he uses all three members again? Um, uh, to me, that's kind of Trinitarian, but Paul, but Coleman says it's the beginning of the Trinity. So now you've got some of our most important uh, doctrines. Just a second. Oh, you're good. That was my research assistant. I told him to take a hike. I didn't tell him. <laughs> I turned on the phone and turned it off. Um, so my apologies there, too. I don't know oh, what you're gonna, no, no. It's what good. you're going to have to cut out. But you could go down the line, and you can get a list of, like, say, a dozen. I've got a little book I wrote years ago that lists about a dozen doctrines that follow from the resurrection. Mm, so that's good. I would tell people, here's the biggest thing the resurrection gives us the yellow brick road that oh. tells us what we should be doing now and where we will end up, i.e. in the Emerald city. Mm -hmm. So I used to say it a lot more than I say it now, but I'll say, therefore follow the yellow brick road, <laughs> follow the yellow brick road. And all the way through that, that tale in wizard of Oz, the, the theme is something like this. Don't throw those apples back at those mean apple trees that are thrown at us. Just kidding. We got a job to do. Keep going. 
Whoa, look at that big guy on the right with the axe. He looks like he could cut us to pieces. No, we're going to go over and help him. He's going to be a friend of ours. Let's keep moving. Uh Uh-oh, here's the darkest part of the woods. And, of course, we have the darkest parts of lives. And this is the area where there are lions and tigers and bears. And I preach. I do this at a church, and the little kids in the church go, oh, my, when they do it. (laughs) And here comes this lion, and we get through that because we have to follow the yellow brick road. But the hardest thing is when we come out and see the Emerald City and there's poppies in between and everybody's going to sleep. Well, now you learn another theme. When someone falls down and goes to sleep, the others have to come over and help them up. So now you got this corporate body that we call the church that has to help people that are in pain and you all get everybody through it and you get safely to the Emerald City. It, it, it's such a great picture, but it's that road that you have to stay on. And the resurrection says, don't wander off of it, stay on it. But along the way, you've got all these other doctrines flushing in. So it's mm-hmm. the it's the key to everything in the New Testament. I feel like like a moment ago I said that the hermene- that that Paul's hermeneutic was changed by the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that our hermeneutic needs to be changed by the resurrection of Jesus. And when I say hermeneutic, I don't merely mean uh how we read the Bible, although that's important. But I also mean how we interpret life, right? When we face life's challenges, like you were saying, that we approach that and interpret that with a fresh Christological resurrection-focused understanding where we can look at even death and say, where is your sting, right? And I, so I think there's a lot of yeah. pastoral perspective here. Yeah. That's biblical too. Where yeah. is your sting? And I tell people, yeah. that's not poetry. That's mm. not, oh, death, <laughs> where's your sting? <laughs> Where's your victory? As Paul says, I I mean, as uh, uh, Tom Wright says, uh, he says, Paul's trash-talking death there. He's trash-talking the devil. And that made, the resurrection made Paul so bold and so Mm. firm, he didn't mind getting in death's face, didn't mind getting in the devil's face. He would get nose-to-nose with them and say, I know you can hurt me. Go ahead, give me a swat. I know you can hurt me but you can't keep me from going to the Emerald city. Hmm. I'm going. So try to shut me up. You won't do it until Lord sees fit to bring me home. That was his whole message. Mm -hmm. That's so So. good. That's so good. Well, well, one quick question. Um, And this is more of a teaser for other, for the audience to go and maybe do some research. And I know you've done a lot of research on this, but tell us real quickly the role, the potential role that near death experiences have uh, for resurrection studies is our near death experiences a legitimate topic of interest with respect to this topic itself. Yeah, and one book of medical doctors who write on the subject, mm-hmm. they start the book by estimating that 9 to 20 million people have had near-death experiences in the world today. Mm-hmm. Now, how about through history? Now, the, the point is, see, critics like to say to us, one of their most potent objections is, Here's why my theory is better than yours. I only have this walk-a-day, live-a-day world, a real world of sticks and stones and trees. You have to have another world with God, and you've got no evidence for it. you just got this other world you stick in there. And if you don't have evidence for it, time up. I don't want to talk about the resurrection. Okay, time up. Let's talk about near-death experiences. Because those people, you can take the simplest ones. There's hundreds of them that are evidenced. A few dozen of them, their evidence, as far as we know, the person has no brain or heart beat or waves, and they report things that are true. Now, if you take a simple one, 
the person is on the operating table, they come back up top, and they're screaming at the doctor, top of their lungs, their spirit, I guess. Quit beating on my chest. I don't want to come back. Let me go. If you just let me go, I could go. I've seen enough to know I want to go here. I don't want to come back anymore. And they're shouting. And finally, the doctor does his job, and he's pounding and pushing, and the person comes back, and, oh, they're in a body full of cancer, and, and they're going to have to go through the process of death. Where were they that they were shouting at him? And I saw one one cartoon, one, uh, you know, framed cartoon where the doctor stops and says to the person up above, are you going to come back down in the body or am I going to pronounce you dead? You know, like as if he could hear the in the ear, but they don't hear the in the ear. Now, I don't know what you call it, but the in the ear is in another realm. And that's what critics say we don't have. They say we don't have another world that's attached to this one. But what NDEs say is there's an afterlife somewhere. We don't know where, but there's an afterlife. And so I say to critics, if I know there's an afterlife, that's the same realm that resurrection happens in. There's a straight line from follow the yellow brick road to uh, afterlife. And probably the best indication of the afterlife, not counting the resurrection, is near-death experiences. And so if, in, if the Indies open the back of the path to the Emerald City, resurrection opens the front of the path, they meet in the middle. The resurrection says there's an afterlife. Uh, I'm sorry, Resurrection says there's an afterlife. NDEs say there's an afterlife. They meet together. And that's the benefit of NDEs to tell you there is another world, or at least another dimension, say whatever you want. Mm -hmm. There's another dimension, It's and it's called the afterlife. The resurrection ties in with this. And we not only have the NDE evidence, we have the resurrection evidence. So the path, that that's for me, I tell people, yeah, I do resurrection and NDEs. But that's not two topics, that's one topic. Mm. It's resurrection to the to the emerald city that's the two combined and that's why i think they're related because they both tie together in the idea of the afterlife yeah they both announce that that death physical death is not the final say essentially exactly and why yeah. that person up above their body very frequent why do they say to the doctor quit beating on me stop it i want to move on let me go why do they do that because where they can see their heading is far better to them than the cancer-wracked body that I know I'm going to die from in six months anyway. I, I'd rather just go right now. Just let me go. Okay, that sounds to Now, how does that tie in? Philippians chapter 1 is, these are two of my favorite five verses in the New Testament. But Paul says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Hmm. Verse 21. I tell people, I've heard a lot of sermons on to live as Christ. I've heard virtually no sermons on to die is gain. We don't talk about it. But mm. Paul says it's gain. The two verses later, which I like even better, he says, I prefer to die and be with Christ, which is better by far. And you know the Greek way, 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 way more than I do. But I understand that that word, better by far, what we translate by far, it's an emphatic kind of like, I really mean it. It's really a lot better there. In fact, I read a translation once where the translation was, I prefer to be with to die be with Christ, which is better, comma, far better. That's mm. how they translate that emphatic thing, mm. uh, usage. And in the, it doesn't seem like Paul is saying similarly to what the NDE are saying. Leave me alone. I want to go home. 
I want to, I already see what I'm going to have. I want to go there. Hey, listen, I love you guys, but I know you're going to be with me too. So just let me go. And besides, who wants to go through what I have to go if I go back in the body? Whoops, I'm back in the body. Mm. You know, so it's a same, it's a similar message. I'm not trying to say Indies are, I'm not trying to do that stuff. Yeah. But because Indies don't tell us which religion is true. It's like intelligent design arguments for God's existence. It just says some religion is true. Yeah. But there's an afterlife, and the person wants to stay there, and Paul wants to stay there. And -hmm. Paul seems to have had a near-death experience Mm -hmm. in uh, 2 Mm -hmm. Corinthians uh, 12. So, you know, by the way, Bible scholars, before NDs became popular, I've got a couple of them, where they said the time element. He said, I knew a man 12 years ago. They said the time element works out pretty closely when he was in Lystra. Yeah. In Stone, Leopard Head. Yeah. Now, if that if that's true, that would all the more make Second Corinthians twelve look like an NDE. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, you know, it, it's really important that the listeners understand that you know these near death experiences. You're not making these up as like thought experiments. Like these are actually what you were talking about were based on actual reports that people have given, and that that are later verified by a third party. Which is yeah. you know, I they see something that there's no way that a body on a gurney should have been able to see. Right. That's right. The and stuff's so, in the medical. It's in the medical yeah. literature. There's a major right. guy, a good friend of mine, Bruce Grayson. Mm-hmm. He has published. I understand. One hundred. He's done way more than 100 articles, mm-hmm. but he's done 100 essays in medical and psych uh, journals. So if there's 100 articles from one guy in the journals, <laughs> it's being taken pretty seriously. Hey, yeah. Matt, here's something for you. Yeah. I just read this recently from an atheist. You probably know Michael Shermer. He's a really well-known atheist. He's, he's the editor of the journal Skeptic. Mm. And, and he did a survey. And here's how he starts. He, he says, I don't know who did the survey, but he said in a recent survey, only surveying atheists and agnostics, atheists and agnostics, we asked, or someone asked the question, do you believe in an afterlife? Now, real quickly, I mean, philosophically, we would say, hey, y'all, if you believe in an afterlife, that doesn't come from your philosophy. But here's a surprising thing. 32% of them believed in an afterlife. I remember you telling me that the other day. Yeah, it's it's inconsistent with their theory, Mm. but they want to go there. It just goes to show that that topic is hot for not just believers, right? But for a lot of people. But it doesn't follow from their worldview. It's a contradiction. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I think think for believers that that goes back to Philippians 1, 21 and 23. mm. It's, It's a fantastic message. It would present a challenge for philosophical naturalism, uh, at, le- at least the, 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 sort, the sort that I know, uh, that I'm aware of. Maybe they come up with a different. No, I think you're right. I mean, so, yeah. here's the funny thing. A Buddhist, a Hindu, mm. a Muslim, a Jew, and a Christian can stand shoulder to shoulder and affirm NDEs and an afterlife and not know which one is true from NDEs because NDE doesn't prove any of them. But here's what they all agree on. Naturalism is false. Mm. That's good. That's good. And with it, of course, atheism is a subcategory. So, yeah, yeah. Well, tell us when your book's going to be out. Is it next year? Is it this year? The first volume is due out if there's no delays. Right now, we're on target. Mm-hmm. It's due out this coming January. It's this coming. It's a long way away. It's due ne- this next January. Oh, 24. that's right. Yeah. And do you January have a work- 24. Do you have a working title? Is that something you can share? Or- 
No, you know what? Oh, I could I'd share it in a heartbeat if I knew it. Okay. But <laughs> around around the the I don't know if they intend that. I don't know. They call the set the resurrection. Hmm. And they call the first book the evidence. Okay. They call cool. the second book uh alternative theories because not all of them are naturalistic alternative theories and so they're they're doing that like real simple titles like resurrection sure. resurrection evidence resurrection alternative theories and we're moving on to the last two volumes oh very good gary it is always a pleasure to talk with you and today is no exception i just really enjoyed this conversation thank you so much for hanging out with us Oh, Matt, your your knowledge is, is great. I love talking to you for that reason. In fact, your people don't know this, but Matt's one of the one of the three New Testament scholars who reviewed two of my chapters. I I can't take that stuff on my own. I, I mean, I have a Greek minor, which I tell people doesn't make me good. That makes me dangerous. <laughs> um, I can't do Greek like that. Oh, by the way, the fellow who's editing my book, what they told me, I got to check this out. The guy's got a PhD in Semitics. And when he goes through my, he changes all my titles, like Josephus, this the life or, you know, wars. He changes all the titles to the Latin exact, the exact titles are called in scholarly work. So he put together my scholarly index at the beginning where all the sources I use, and he put the page numbers, but he did it. He did the index with all the good titles instead of <laughs> Habermas saying Suetonius, Julius Caesar 14, he does the last, he does the abbreviations that are used in classical literature. So. That, that's his that's his home territory. It's second nature. Well, but I mean, between story. you and the other two New Testament guys who did two chapters each, and now this guy, who I've never met, but he's my editor of the whole thing. He's doing all four volumes, editing them. The Lord has just given me a great team, and you were one of them. You're one of the guys to go through this, and I'm I'm eternally grateful for what y'all have done. That was a pleasure. I I, I enjoy those two chapters and I can't wait for the whole set. I'll be the first one to get it. I can't it, so either. So good. I can't yeah. wait myself. <laughs> I know. You need to go on vacation once that thing hits the shelves, right? <laughs> I do. But my yeah. wife and I can't figure out where we want to go because all our grandkids, 16 of them, all live in this town. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you, know, you know what my wife would say? Well, there's there's a solution. Take them all with us. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. Go to the beach. Have some fun. That's great. There you go. Well, Gary, blessings to you and your ministry. Thank you, Thanks for hanging out. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. That's the end of today's episode, and thanks again for listening to The Bible Unmuted. If you like this podcast, consider rating it on your podcast platform, subscribing to it, and sharing with your friends. You can also support the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted, or simply find the link to the Patreon page in the description for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, friends. Thank you.